0: Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions
1: of the host. That moment, the walls just came in and I was like, oh my God. I'm being arranged right now. Mm. I'm about to get married. I'm about to be thrust into a, a place where I can't get out. And I have no idea who I'm going to be assigned to. And I'll never get out now.
0: Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions or organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. If you're only listening and you want to see our faces, go to my YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness. We have all the conversations going on over there. I love reading your comments and I respond to as many as I can. Drop below if you have an idea for a guest, someone that you want to see on the show, and if we can get them on, we will try and shout you out for your suggestion. So today's guest, uh, this is someone who grew up in the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the FLDS for short. And we're going to get into what that means, (laughs) because most of you know that I grew up in mainstream Mormonism, or that's kind of what we nicknamed it. And today we're going to be looking at the Fundamentalist side. There was a few documentaries that have come out. Um, The one that I watched was Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. And people, if you are out there, this is a documentary that was actually based on the exact fundamentalist group that Jude here was a part of, the Warren Jeffs group in Colorado Springs. I cannot wait to welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Jude Bateman.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. This is a really, really cool opportunity, not only to sort of redefine my story, but to also connect with other people that may have a similar story or just simply just love this type of topic because it's just exciting and and strange and bizarre. But either way, this is a really cool opportunity to be here. Thank you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this is a topic that a lot of people have been requesting as well. And we were connected. So I was excited to get you on and hear about your story because I watched that documentary with my jaw on the floor the entire time. (laughs) Because as as someone who grew up Mormon, there were a lot of things that I knew about Mormonism, obviously. And then once I left, I learned way more about Mormonism than I ever knew as an active Mormon. So I kind of knew some of the things and the original doctrine of the church. But when I saw how how extreme it got in this group, my mind was blown. And I just... I commend you, first of all, for coming out of this so strong, and and now it seems like you're very happy and you're well-adjusted, but I'm sure that that was quite a ride. So we're actually going to be doing two separate episodes. The first one today, we're going to be talking about how you grew up in this group, and then the second one, we are going to be diving into how she adjusted into normal life once she was able to escape the group a lot of information here. So let's get into it. Uh, Where do we even start? Do you want to tell everyone what the fundamentalist group is, kind of how it came to be, or the split between mainstream Mormonism and fundamentalism in a nutshell?
1: Yeah. Um, First of all, I'll say for any of the listeners who may have been curious about um, when you had said Colorado Springs, for, for the sect, where I'm from is Colorado City, Arizona. Oh, thank you. Yes. I just say that because a lot of times people are, are curious about exactly where it's at. Cause they think it's somewhere else. Is it Colorado, the state? But it's Colorado City, Arizona, contiguous to Healdale, Utah. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, no worries. And if we were going to go all the way back in history to discuss like where this official split happened— then I'm sure that would be a whole nother 10 episodes, but <laughs> yeah. the fundamental principles of the LDS faith sort of, um, segued and where there was one part of the religion that was preserved and carried on, which is where I'm from. And then, of course, the, the other split was where they abandoned the ideology of polygamy, which is, is where you're from. And, A lot of times when I'm talking to people who are either of the LDS faith, whether they're they're um, fully engaged in that faith or whether they've left, they all seem to have a very um, they seem to be very loud about making that distinction between the two. Mm. So I always just preface that just for anyone who's curious as to what defines both of them. So in a nutshell, basically. FLDS is the fundamentalist faith. It's carried on by um, Prophet Joseph Smith and still embraces the idea of, of polygamy, whereas the LDS faith um, does not, has sort of abandoned that idea.
0: Yeah. And you said that uh, people tend to be really loud about the distinction. I am guilty as charged <laughs> because- <laughs> Because when I moved to Portland, and I have to use this example a lot because it's the first time I was exposed to anyone that wasn't Mormon. And so I just got bombarded with questions that I just was not ready for. And everyone was like, oh, you're from Utah. How many moms do you have? And I was so annoyed. I hated it. I would be like, why don't practice polygamy?" Like me? <laughs> I was so <laughs> mad. I was like, that's not us. But back in the day, I didn't realize that what you guys were doing was really its very core, what Mormonism was and what it was founded to be. And I was so angry. I was like, they're not really Mormon. But guys, like Jude here was like the true blue Mormon, right? Like she was doing it right as far as what Joseph Smith and the early prophets wanted. The dress, the hair, the talk, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, so let's get into what that actually looks like. So we've established that. But what are some of the other rules that you guys stuck to or kind of made more extreme in your group? Paint us a picture
1: of what it looks like. Sure, absolutely. And that picture looks a little different depending on if you're part of Ward 1 or Ward 2. Um so it's not identical to those who are in the LDS faith. Everyone sort of understands wards as as it's sort of like a, a different congregation territorially. Mm-hmm. And where I'm from, if you say first ward, those are the true fundamentalists that are part of Warren Jeffs um church. Those are the the first ward. And we don't necessarily identify the the split, the second ward is second ward per se, we just sort of identify as the sect where I'm from is, is um, the first word. Oh, so there's two very distinct groups. Now they were at one time, they were part of one group and there was a split. This was um, in the late fifties. Oh no, actually, that was a little bit later. It would have been sometime in the sixties or seventies, but there was a split that fractured and separated the church into two groups. And that was specifically due to determination of leadership. Mm. So there was a disagreement between who should be next leader. And, you know, as I'm reflecting and, and speaking, I do have to correct myself because I know that if I have some of my own um, former members they're gonna be like no that was not the correct year so I'm <laughs> reflecting back and I do believe that was closer to the 80s I know I'm gonna have some historians like calling me up being like you got that wrong <laughs>
0: you know what it's fine we get people calling us out all the time you can call us out in the comments cults to consciousness is about sharing stories and experiences and occasionally we may get some of the facts wrong and that's okay
1: <laughs> love it then in that case I'm just gonna keep rolling. Anyway, at one point there was a the separation. So the reason I state that is because the way that life is lived and the practices were somewhat different in the sect where I'm from, which we refer to as compound now because there were so many other other groups that were kind of broken off from there later on. It was extremely rigid, very very rigid whereas the um the, the separated um, congregation, they were not nearly as much. And and for, I'll give you an example of that would be um, courtship practices, marriage practices. In the group where I'm from, in Warren Jeff's group, there was not any choice you know, when it came to being assigned to a family or being assigned in, in marriage. Mm-hmm. You knew at any time, once you had um, done what's called turning yourself in, where you go before, brethren brother or before, like in my case, I went directly to Warren Jeff's to turn myself in, meaning that you present yourself to be arranged for a marriage and he determines um, through his prayerful visions, he would assign you to someone. And how old? And that happened at 15 years old for me. Wow.
0: 15. Is there a reason for this age, like a doctrinal reason, or is that just the age that he thought was appropriate to get married?
1: There's not a specific age. It's more of when you're encouraged to do so. So there are some girls that would go through that practice, demonstrating themselves for readiness at 12, 13 years old. And whether they sat on his list for years or not, there's there's a lot of debate on that, and there's, as we know from from previous court hearings and other testimonies of it of individuals, there's a lot of women that were married at 12, 13, 14, and so on, well below the legal age. Oh. Uh, in my case, I was hesitant. I was hesitant on turning myself in for marriage because at that time is when I started to really doubt, really doubt the... The faith, um, I started to find contradictions and, um, kind of demonstrate a lot of what would be considered rebellion. Usually it's encouraged by the father. It's the father's responsibility to take his daughters before the priesthood and have them do turn themselves in. Yeah. In my case, um, my father was, he was pretty adamant about waiting until his children were of legal age of 18 and my brothers were in conflict with my dad's beliefs. They didn't feel that he was demonstrating his faith quite as as vehemently as, as they should.
0: And I, I do want to get into, I guess it would be the end of this episode. So let's let's hold off on that. I want to go back even further and talk about what it was like as a child growing up in this way. You briefly mentioned the dresses. So what are the things that you can and cannot wear? I brought one, too, to show. You brought one? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Do you want me to show you the dress? Yes, please. You can see the true evidence of of good old Mormonism. Oh, my goodness. Everyone that's on the podcast apps are, like, rushing to YouTube right now to see this dress. (laughs) For people who can't see the dress, it's all the way up to the neck
1: and has long, puffy sleeves. So, I have to say something interesting about this though, even though this is kind of traditional garb, most of the time I didn't wear something like this unless I was going to church. I was a little more rebellious. I wore um, sometimes store-bought clothes or I would make, we all learned how to be seamstresses. So we'd make our own clothing and it would be a little bit, we might make it a little more revealing or <laughs> we might not have the seam all the way to the neck or something like that. Oh, okay. But um, Another part of the dress too is there was a rule later on where you couldn't have any type of patterning, especially in this case where there's rosebuds on the dress where that would be absolutely would be rejected because it, it hints to some form of feminine sexuality. Wow. So, so there was kind of an evolution even in the attire. Yeah. And there's, there's a very specific way in which we, um, parts of the body that had to be covered. So it could never be like just a couple inches above the ankle. So they're very very long. Oh. Yeah, wow. to expose the calf and the ankle would have been you you would have been sent home.
0: <laughs> Not those sexy calves though. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. From the documentary, I was learning about the hairstyles. Was that a thing as well?
1: Yes. Yeah. And that evolved also. Um, over the years, the church got more and more and more strict as Warren started to present these uh, visions, these so-called visions. It just became um, more radical, much more. But growing up, um, there was some flexibility and the decisions were left to the father of the home. It was left to the man to make decisions. He would go to priesthood meeting and then he would come and, and then relay whatever messages or ensure that he would demonstrate his leadership over the home based on what the church had decided. Um, but as Warren, um, took over, after his father had passed, then it, as I was saying, it just got more and more radical, and then the decisions were no longer left to, to the father. But um, with the hairstyles, that was also something that was kind of specific to um, our identity um, and to to the church. I'm not sure where the the we called them poofs. Like, I'm yeah. sure you've seen the, like the, there's always the caricatures that shows like this big wave of hair. Uh-huh. It's really peculiar in terms of like social status, what was happening there, even though it wasn't intentional. You'd see those of kind of the hierarchy of the church that would have like a, a higher, higher poof. It just se- it seemed that way. Now, I don't think anybody would admit it, but it seemed pretty obvious. And it was always kind of like this internal joke too. It's like, oh, how high are you going to put that hair today? You know, if you're, gonna marry into whomever whoever's house so oh my gosh did you guys ever
0: say the higher the hair the closer to god there was
1: yeah there was like inside (laughs) like side jokes kind of being silly about it yeah
0: can you describe for people who aren't familiar what they actually look like like all the different styles because i can see it in my head but i'm sure there are
1: people who aren't familiar with it yeah (laughs) Uh, to give you an idea it would be like someone from (laughs) (laughs) Whoseville. (laughs) <laughs> no, so in the front there's um, this kind of like ratted. It's a stacked um, wave that's like poofed in the front, and then we were always instructed not to leave too many flyaways or too much hair hanging because we felt that that would distract the men, um, and they would they wouldn't be able to stay on the path of righteous thoughts. So our hair. Um, and I'm sure the LDS um, faith can recognize this as well, but we, it was considered our crown and glory. Mm. So it was important to not expose your hair. It would, it would be considered very wild. So we'd keep our hair back and, and it didn't matter how we did. So, so we got very, very creative with different types of braids and twists and bonds and everything. And we, never cut our hair either. That was considered oh. blasphemous. Sometimes we would trim oh, the wow. ends and we'd use the excuse that it was just simply to keep our hair healthy. Most people never would never consider dyeing their hair, cutting their hair, anything of that sort. So it was always placed neatly in a braid or a bun or something like that. But the poof in the front was certainly something that identified anyone from any other faith. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times we'd be, if we were out in public, someone might ask us if we were Amish, for example, or Mennonites, anyone who understood that hair, that hairstyle, they'd say, oh, okay, we know exactly where they're from, which they could probably identify from outer space. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. So
0: so you did have opportunities to leave this – Would you, did
1: you call it a compound? You would leave this compound? We sort of adopted that word for most of us that have left. We, we're, we call ourselves crickers. So we always say, oh, you're a cricker. Or I'm going back to the crick, meaning Colorado City, which originally was – when it was established was named Short Creek. And because of the way we spoke, we just say crick. So mm. anyway <laughs> – for anyone who wants to know where that, the evolution of that came from. But the compounds, we started to identify them as compounds because later on after Warren had taken over, then there were so many different splits, little um, compounds. And he had them all over the place, anywhere from Texas, anyone who follows the FLDS, you've you'd known about the the compound in El Dorado, Texas, where that the entire, um, court case that brought Warren to justice, um, occurred. And then there's the compound in Colorado city, um, compounds in Canada, North Dakota, they're all over the place.
0: So everyone in the Fundamentalist Church lived in the same area, right? As far as the Warren Jeffs group, you were all neighbors in the same area. And yeah. were, were you able to leave at any time? Were people guarding, I don't know, if there was a gate?
1: Uh, what was that like? There certainly was a sense of imprisonment. And when... Outsiders who were curious would come through the town to get a peek of what it was like. You'd see large walls boarded up way beyond the code of, of building um, to keep people out. So there was very it was a very, very evident keep out sort of view. And it it certainly gave that appearance of being imprisoned. And being inside of the compound for some people like myself it felt that that way as well, being barred on the inside. If we wanted to leave, there had to be a good reason. There had to be, you had to be escorted. um, And there had to be permission. There were occasions where I might ask, might've asked my father, hey, the sisters and I, we wanna go to the park and whatever it was, we wanna go hiking or something. And he would say yes or no, depending on, on, what was happening. But for most families though, they rarely left. And if they did, it was in a congregation. Um, or if it was, it was someone who was, um, that had to be escorted or something. So they were never, we were, we were rarely left alone and couldn't simply just make the decision to get in a vehicle and, and drive outside of the compound. Just witnessing my sister who had, she had been removed from the Colorado city compound And she was removed and placed in a compound in Nevada, was not able to leave the home for years with her children until she had escaped. Oh, depending on the circumstance and the dynamic, there's situations that were much, much, much more, more strict and specific about receiving those permissions to be to have any type of freedom.
0: Now, I'm I'm sure you don't want to speak for your sister, so you don't have to give specific reasons. What were some of the let's say blanket statement reasons that someone would be punished to that degree or their freedom would be
1: taken away? One common reason would be just as you'd put it punishment, there had to be some some demonstration of faith based on your sins. And your sins could simply be that you'd confessed dirty thoughts, or you confess that when you were a teenager, you sneaked out and kissed a boy, or it could be, um, you, you could confess to Warren Jeffs and he would have some, some inspiration that you were not of faith and you'd have to be sent to a specific area where you would be removed from your children. This, this is one example. You might be removed from your children and placed in a compound of isolation until he felt that you have demonstrated some faith and testament. If you can maintain your faith and practice it, the doctrine to the great degree that's expected while you're undergoing this severe anguish and punishment of being separated from your family and your children. That was a true testament of faith, and therefore you may be worthy to return to your compound and receive your children again. That's one example. The other was simply because Warren had known, that the whole church, everyone had known that he was being pursued. He was going to be prosecuted. So they started to make a lot of changes to make it almost impossible to identify certain people or to find certain people so in their mind they felt as though there was some sort of protection and most of the followers had no idea it was blind faith you're given a direction and almost immediately you have to do whatever it was that you were exacted to do there was no questioning whether that came to marriage. Whether that came to being completely separated from your husband and your children, someone could knock on your door at any given moment and say, You're no longer married to this man, or these children are no longer for you to raise, or you're, you're, we're taking you from this husband and you're being moved to a different family. Oh, I know from an outsider looking in and having the experience that I did, that is a pretty, standard type of of activity for for a cult leader, right? Constantly keep Mm -hmm. them in some sort of distress or or questioning. Um, There cannot be any specific comfort or stability. So there was an intention in that action. Incredibly distressing.
0: As you just said, distress is probably the best word. What was your family dynamic like? I'm sure everyone is like, how did she skip over the question? How many moms did she have? <laughs> <Because> <laughs> I'm sure people are wondering what your family actually looked like.
1: <laughs> it sort of looked like a Barnum and Bailey's every day. <laughs> Gathering Family gatherings were fun. Um, we certainly always had a partner in crime with how many siblings they were. But I am the fourth child of 17 children. Wow. So there were two two mothers. Uh, my mother had 13 children, and then four were from the second wife. Wow. 13. Uh, the second wife came into the family when, yeah, even that is a lot, right? Yeah. Even for Mormon families, traditional <laughs> Mormon. The second mother came into the family when I was about 9 or 10 years old, somewhere in there. And that was kind of a, an interesting, um, transformation in our lives for sure. I can speak for most of my siblings where it was just like a, an awe moment. Like, wow, like you had to completely redefine what a relationship, like a marriage dynamic looked like. Because Mm -hmm. here was my father and mother living sort of this traditional, all we ever knew kind of life. And then all of a sudden we see my father bringing another woman in and they're expected to to get along. They're expected to not feel jealousy. They're expected to kind oh. of live that that um traditional marriage but with with someone else in the home. Ward where I'm from in the in that sect, the mothers generally were required to live in the same home. Now in the second ward, it's not quite as traditional that way. Generally there's a choice if the if the woman is invited to join a family, if whether she's second, third, fourth, fifth, twentieth wife, if she were to decline, there was generally a choice. But if she chooses to join the family but wants to live in her own apartment or a different part of the home or in a completely separate home, that was that's a little more traditional. So in a sense, there's it's not any more different than living um, ethical non monogamy, you know, but where. In the compound where I'm from, that was not a true testament to your faith and to your commitment to the doctrine and to to this arrangement. If you were not able to overcome your jealousies and live in harmony in the home with all the wives
0: oh lord help me i could not i could not i was. some were able to but... my goodness bless them i could not do that and i'm sure that i i know people practice polyamory and such and outside of mm-hmm. of cults and that's fine and it works for them and that's amazing sure, yeah. i am just not one of those people i so
1: she but did, everyone's willing participants at that point
0: <laughs> yeah i just wow Um, so your second mom, did you say that she did live in home with you? Because I'm trying to picture a house that is suitable for 13 children, plus the children that she's about to have. And like, how did that look?
1: Like all FLDS families, we lived in a very, very large home. We have a 17,000 square foot home, three levels. Whoa. Yeah. Big home. And. All of it, it's very traditional too to live in a home that's not, that's unfinished. And what you do is you build one room at a time and everyone, one of the trades of all members of the FLDS, primarily the the men, but they're all builders and they all work in construction or something of that. Very, very manual labor. So we all had the tree to be able to, create and build our own home. So it was was kind of, it wasn't unusual. So we had this very large, massive home that started out as just a structure. And we just built as a family, one room at a time. My dad's still building on it to this day. And he has one child left at home. (laughs) Wow. So what my dad had done is he built... Uh, a couple of rooms in the basement <laughs> to, to keep the moms as separate as they could. So the second mother lived in the basement and he had built a, a few rooms downstairs, very well designed. And then the first level, the top room, that's where he put my mother's room. And then like most traditional FLDS families, they sort of just do it. Like if they had five wives, it would just be like, you know, every fifth day it's your you know you get to be with your husband,
0: <laughs> oh my, so they would they would literally rotate between the wives. It's a
1: rotation, yeah. How did that make you feel? Observing it, there was always a weird curiosity. It was like, okay, you don't you don't want to know what your parents are doing, right? Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, there's such a curiosity, especially when there's a new person in the home that is removing your father's attention from your mother. So there's a lot of. Cu- psychological conflict when that happens. yeah. And I could see my mother struggling deeply with that. And I knew from what we were taught in church, that struggle was very, very, very deeply personal because it was expected that you were joyous. You were so joyous that your husband has now received another wife. And therefore, he's closer to God. Mm. He's closer to reaching the celestial kingdom through marriage.
0: That's a really good point that I wanted to bring up because I I forget, especially I have some viewers that are like, stop acting like we know what Mormonism is because it's so normal to my brain that I forget to explain things when we're on this topic. So I wanted to clarify to our viewers here that celestial marriage is… Polygamous in the scriptures in the Book of Mormon isn't it DNC the t- DNC one thirty two that talks about in order to get to the highest level of heaven you need to practice polygamy doctrine and, and
1: covenants yeah
0: okay so that was never removed from the Book of Mormon so if you were to ask uh, we call mainstream Mormons that don't practice polygamy what about this scripture that Joseph Smith got the revelation from God that says that you have to be you have to practice polygamy in heaven um, or Practice polygamy in general, they would say, oh no. We've received another revelation that says we shouldn't practice polygamy. However, how convenient, (laughs) how convenient. They still believe in polygamy in heaven. And that was one of the things that drove me nuts. And I remember as a kid saying, there is no way I'm going to do that. Like when I get to heaven, God better be ready to fight me because I'm not sharing my (laughs) husband. And as we've established, I'm not I'm not down with that. That is one of the, the major things with the fundamentalist group is is that when the mainstream church said that they are no longer practicing polygamy because God said they were like, no, this is an eternal law. We're going to continue doing that. And so what Jude is explaining is how the more wives you have, the more righteous you are and the better standing you are in God's eyes. So I just thought I should clarify that little bit of doctrine so people are in the same understanding. And we know now that Joseph Smith is basically just created this revelation because he wanted a bunch of wives and didn't want to, like there's literally a scripture that says, to Emma. It's like the second, I want to say that it's the only time, one of two times that there's a woman's name, that there's a woman's name in the in the Book of Mormon. And it's Emma saying, if you don't practice polygamy, if you don't allow your husband, Joseph Smith, to practice polygamy, an angel with a flaming sword will destroy you and him. It's really wild and very right. coercive and manipulative. And he was already practicing polygamy yes. 10 years before that revelation came about in secret. So it's really shady. And that's kind of where it came from. So now you're all filled in. Let's get back to you, Jude. <laughs> How did you feel as a child toward this other woman? Were you kind of annoyed that this other cuz nine-year-olds they're they're kind of spicy and they have opinions, you know? Did you feel like she was taking you in as a mother or did she just kind of focus on her own kids?
1: There's certainly a sense of curiosity and a desire to be wanted. And to spend time with them, um, to spend time with the new mother. So there was, I certainly remember that, having a lot of curiosity and kind of wanting her to want to be around me. Mm. And um, what could be better than two loving mothers, right? Yeah. But our situation was different. We knew that there was supposed to be a harmony in the home, especially when another woman comes in. There was supposed to be this new balance. There was a shared responsibility. There was this love and light. It was all supposed to be very fairy tale, just like the, the kind of the biblical sense of it. And it was not that case at all. The challenge for the second mother was far greater than the challenge it was for my mother. And the reason for that was, I can't speak for my father or my mother, but just from an outsider looking in, it's very apparent that there wasn't that deep eternal love present. I mean, here comes a complete stranger. If you're not attracted to somebody, you're not attracted to them. Mm-hmm. But you're required to participate in the acts of marriage mm-hmm. and to continue perpetuating your family and so on. I imagine that that was a deep struggle for my father, and a deep, and it was very clear it was a very deep, deep struggle for the second mother to feel that rejection or to feel not chosen over my mother, right? and they couldn't have been different. So what happens in those those dynamics with extreme turmoil and extreme stress, then it pushes people to a breaking point. So us as children were exposed to quite a bit of violence, which isn't the norm. It's not the norm in In, Or at least from what I gathered in in that type of family dynamic. So um, I got very physical and very violent. And the second mother um, was later diagnosed with a mental illness. And whether Mm. her experience sort of thrust that upon her or whether she had a predisposition to it, I'm not sure. Because I have a tremendous amount of compassion for her now. Mm -hmm. And what she had to endure that actually pushed her to that breaking point psychologically. So it's pretty... Pretty damaging. What many women can go through, and it's not uncommon for women to go on anti-anxiety, anti-psychotics, and antidepressants to be able to live that life. It's so when we joke like, "Oh, it's the the lobotomy smile that the the plague we call ourselves plagues the plague women have," where it's just kind of like, mm, mm-hmm. you know, just very myopic and. Oh, how are you? Yeah. Like we we joke about it a lot when we're together, but there's, there's a seriousness behind that. It wasn't the beautiful life that we had expected. And that was very disappointing for me as a child to sit back and observe this catastrophe that was happening where there was such a contradiction between what I knew we were supposed to believe and how polygamy was supposed to be lived and so on. And, um, watch it sort of crumble, and later on, the second mother had left the family uh, My father helped her find it a place outside of the compound it was she was clearly clearly struggling she had um been placed in a in a mental health facility for a period of time, and then at that point was was um had left the family and she had left her children behind, which was the best thing that she could have done for them for sure it's not um. I can't imagine what she had endured to do that, to be able to to regain her own health and what had happened. She, um, so her children stayed with the family and were raised by my mother and uh, and by all of us. Wow, your mom! I cannot,
0: I cannot imagine raising that many children. That must have been an incredible task. What. I'm yeah. just trying to think, even practically and speaking, her. how how did she feed all of you? How what did that look like?
1: A lot of hungry nights. Oh no. <laughs> you know, it's a kind of ironic we're discussing my mother, and I feel like this is such an honor because she passed away thirteen years ago and today oh. is her birthday. Oh my gosh. So love you, Mom. This oh. is so beautiful that we're paying homage to her memory right now. This yeah. is this is incredibly fitting. But yeah, I used to tease her and say, mom, you could hold up the whole world with a safety pin because she was always just consistently pivoting and and getting creative and moving to different, like just consistently finding ways to take care of us or to provide us with some sort of fun or just simply to keep us fed. They're, they're 17 hungry children. And my father was a school teacher, which you can imagine was a struggle for income. And yet. Yet we made it, and the one of the most common questions that people ask me is, "Oh, well, what was that like? Like, how did you how did you possibly survive that or live that?" Well, we didn't know any different. Yeah, we had we had no idea that it was different as children. Yeah, we just didn't have this idea that anything was so hard, you know, or that yeah, if we didn't have certain means, then or certain resources. That everybody else wasn't living that way as well.
0: Yeah, that brings up a good point. I wonder if you could explain to everyone and myself what the information control was like. Were you able to watch TV or read newspapers or were you completely isolated in this group?
1: In order to keep individuals under your thumb, You cannot give them information or materials to the outside world. You have to keep them isolated as much as possible. So there is a very driven intention to isolate people from outside exposure. So what do you do first? You remove social media. Mm. You remove TV. You remove anything that's of influence. And to a certain extent, I, as a parent, I agree with, with some of that, right? With filtering some of that. But to the degree that it was, that we were isolated from that, uh, was frightening. And a lot of times people didn't dare disobey because of the punishment that followed after. People still did. Like we would, there was, a couple of times we might sneak out of the compound and go to the closest movie theater and sneak in, and watch a matinee or something mm-hmm. like that. Right. And it all happened one day where when Warren Jeffs took over at this point, his father was still in the in the leadership in the church. But he was speaking on behalf of him and he had gotten up in church one day and he had told the entire congregation to go home immediately and remove all access to the outside world. TVs, radios, books, burn your books, Wow! smash your TVs, throw them in the garbage. And at that point, someone had also gone around the community and shot all of the pets, all the animals.
0: (gasps) No. So the pets were were killed. Why? Why did the animals have to suffer?
1: Thou shalt not have any idols before me. Like there was. um, Oh, my gosh. I'm going to cry. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I know. Well, we got to, we got to witness friends, neighbors crying that their dog is laying in the street dead. And Mm. at that point, we also had to give up toys
0: and dollies
1: and things like that. So if we had a Barbie, Barbie had to go in the fire. Many families built a fire and threw their items in there. Was everyone okay with this? I mean, were people just
0: like, okay, that's what the prophet says. That's what we're going to do. <clears throat> or, I mean,
1: what did that look like? When certain acts and testaments of faith were handed down, it, it became the norm. Certain testaments to your faith that would be uh, a re- or requests or demands or d- what have you. When certain things were being delivered – in church, it became the norm after a while, and it became mm. kind of this anxiety thing. Like, oh crap! Like, what is it going to be in service today that we we need to um, to get rid of or we need to change? Yeah, that was like the first one that I remember was that where we had to go home and destroy our TVs. Most of the time, when there was an order. It was given to – it was relayed to the men during priesthood meeting. And then the fathers would come home and we'd kind of stand there in angst like, okay, what is it today that we're no longer allowed to do? And some of that would be like the dress. Like I'm looking at this dress and I'm seeing the little flowers on this dress, which we loved. We Little girls would be like, oh, my gosh, it's so cute. It's got the little flowers. Mm-hmm. And father might come home and say, okay, I'll – you girls need to toss out your dresses. Don't ever wear dresses with flowers on them. And that was at one point, that was one of the rules. So there was different rules at different times, but that one was the first initial sounding, was to get rid of anything from the outside world. I remember hearing a lot of squabble among the parents where uh, there's a lot of anxiety being ripped from those things. Yeah, And loss of entertainment and whatever. There's a lot of anxiety there. So there would be a lot of, of talk about what the heck is this? Like, I I don't know how I can do this. And then there was also that opposing voice that would come into that conversation where it's like, this is us getting ready for the coming of Christ. This is us getting ready to, to demonstrate our true faith and Testament. We don't, we're the chosen ones we're chosen and we're not going to be lifted up in the coming of Christ. If we can't purify ourselves and there was this consistent fear that was hammered down. You will not be lifted up. Christ is not appearing because you're not faithful enough. And then the rules became more strict and more strict and more strict.
0: And also to give some context to that, and I want to know if it's it was taught to you the same as it was taught to me, that the second coming of Christ, when he would come – the righteous would be lifted up literally off the ground and the wicked, AKA Mm -hmm. everyone who wasn't Mormon would literally be burned in a fire. So there's some actual literal
1: fear. So it's the same for you then. Exactly. Yes. That is certainly something that's preserved across um, the, the cultural doctrine was certainly that, that was seared in our minds and in that, that carried our blind faith was, I can't be left behind to be scourged off the earth while I'm watching my family literally be lifted up and carried away. And we would have done anything to prepare for that. It was all fear-based. That's how you keep individuals doing the level of things that Warren Jeff's got people to do. Right. Was out of fear.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up because so many times – with these interviews, people go, how did people fall for that? Or it's so obvious. It's really not when you're in it, when you're born in it, when you're raising yes. it, when it's all you know, when you're isolated, you don't have the information, your behavior is controlled. You are stuck in this in this bubble and there's no way to see outside of it because there's no opportunity to. And it's ruled by fear, as you said, when you are so terrified you'll do anything for self-preservation and not only for this life, but for the next life. It's your eternal salvation that's hanging in the balance. Exactly. And so it makes sense that when you have someone who you believe is speaking for God. So I mean this in the most literal sense. This man was chosen to literally sit down and have conversations with God himself. Be the mouthpiece of God. Exactly. And so I can see that where people are taking this as a righteous challenge. Oh, he wants me to do that? Uh, I'll do it. I'm going to prove my worthiness. But I can't imagine what's going on inside the turmoil because, of course, you're going to have this cognitive dissonance of like, this doesn't feel right, but I have to do it. So just this war going on inside of your head, did you feel that at all?
1: Absolutely. And I love that you bring up the terminology cognitive dissonance. That is ultimately what led me to removing myself from the faith at the the very end. Recognizing that, even though I didn't know what it was, but that cognitive dissonance and then having so much contradiction in the doctrine and then what I was seeing and what I was feeling, what was feeling true north. And anytime I questioned, it was offensive. How dare I, especially as a female, how dare you? like a man just told you what your salvation is. How dare you question it? Um, And I'm sure some families find that to be sweet and they may take it as an opportunity to, to further explain um, your faith or church or whatever. But in, in my situation, it was, it was always met with, Oh, this must be a demonstration that you are Mm -hmm. not faithful enough. How dare you question that? And if there were contradictions in what I was reading or what, was being said, and then what I was viewing, it was um, very confusing. And that ultimately led me to start questioning. And I just sort of kept it to myself and started planning. I started planning from 15 years old when I turned myself in, that this is it. I just turned myself in. And that means that I will be given away. Oof. And once that happens, I won't get out.
0: That just gave me goosebumps. I'm like, oh, I just can't even imagine that. I want to... I want to dive into more of what the day-to-day was like because if you don't have a TV or toys or anything, what are you guys actually Mm -hmm. doing every day? What does worship look like? And then after that, I want to kind of get into if you remember some of the specific things that caused you to start questioning.
1: The day-to-day life changed dramatically when all of the entertainment, the pieces of recreation and entertainment were removed. One of those pieces of entertainment outside of your general television was plays that the community would put on. It was very much a part of our tradition to tell stories, to put on community plays that were very silly. We'd have um, someone who was very popular in the community. We, We called everyone uncle. It was very common. So if we had uncle uncle so-and-so that everybody knew. And he was quite an entertainer and he would get up on stage and and do some sort of miming performance or tell a story or bear his testimony. Everything was, there was very much that engagement and involvement within the community. So plays were a big deal. And dances. We all learned how to dance at a very young age. And it was your square dances, your waltz. Um, There was a dance that was very traditional that was created called the Two Ladies Shadish. And I don't know whether it comes from the the history of it, but anyway, it allowed a man to dance with two of his wives. And so there is, we all learned how to have these. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I still remember this
1: dance. Like when I get with my sister, sometimes it's like, Oh, do you remember that? So we would have that type of entertainment, like real traditional wholesome kind of entertainment, which was so fun. And all of that was taken away. So what do you do now? you're left with this abundance of white noise and you're just sifting through this static, trying to understand what's next. And you're sitting there with this fear and angst. And we were told by the church that this was our opportunity to get right, which I don't know if you use that term in- I don't think so. Mm -mm. When you grew up LDS, but- Basically, it's a realignment. Like, how are you demonstrating your faith? How are you incorporating those practices every day to show that you're becoming closer to Heavenly Father? And so our days were filled with work, good old-fashioned work, scripture. And it wasn't just like the Book of Mormon, the Bible, and the Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, all of these traditional Mormon books. It wasn't just those, but Warren Jeffs had also written his own book called In Light and Truth. Oh. And we were required to read that as well. I ended up actually giving that book to John Krakauer when oh my he was under the banner of heaven. So that he could further his further his research for that book. But in any event um, we spent a tremendous amount of time. That was that was the entertainment. There was no room for this. Christ is coming. You need to get ready. There's no room yeah. for this. We need to get ready. There was this urgency, a deep, deep urgency. And mothers spent a tremendous amount of their time preparing children, ensuring that the homeschool was filled with um this righteous material to prepare them as well, so that they would be they would come along for the ride.
0: Okay. So everyone – was everyone homeschooled? Mm-hmm. Okay. So there wasn't just like a community school just for your group of people? Actually,
1: there was. So here's here's another thing that changed. Um, and I was schooled m- – my siblings and I, because my father was a teacher and he's actually well-educated. He ended up getting several degrees, oh. working in different schools, et cetera. But – Because of my father's education and because he was a teacher in the community, he provided us with education up to what was allowed to be taught. There was a lot of things we weren't allowed to be taught. Like what? Like history, for example. No. History. Yeah. We could learn and study church history, but not world history. My father taught biology, but he was instructed by the church to only teach a portion of it. So we could maybe learn cell development, for example, or maybe... Um development of the human, or something of that course, but when it came to anatomy, those pages were ripped out of the book in school. Now, mind you, this is a uh this is a traditional school that's granted and funded by the state. Wow, but we still had certain practices, so we we weren't really audited in the same way. Um I remember my mother preparing my father's classroom. He would get the books for the classes, and she would go through and find all the wicked pages and either tear them out or take a black marker and color over them. So evolution, the theory of evolution, all of that was ripped out. If there was a part that was exposing, let's say it was a a girl. I remember this specifically. This girl's a picture of a girl on a page and she's she has shorts and a, and a t-shirt. That's too much exposure that might excite someone or encourage them to think Outside of the confines of what's expected. So she would color it in with a marker to make it more traditional, draw a dress on them or something of that, that sort. Even though we went to a traditional school, there were very, very non traditional values. There was still a separation between mm. boys and girls. Some classrooms might have just the boys on one side and just the girls on another side. Or if there was, if there was a co-ed class and there was mix and mingle, it was just very, it was encouraged that we don't have that interaction with boys and girls. There was a common line that said, treat one another as snakes. And that just meant that we are poisonous and we should stay away from one another. Wait, what? Yeah.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's (laughs) like next level purity culture where you literally turn the sexes against each other like they're poisonous (laughs) and then expect them to – this is a quote – multiply and replenish the earth, which is why Mormons tend to have a lot of kids because it's literally a commandment. I – I'm just shocked at all of this. So what were some of the things that you started critically thinking about and going, this doesn't make sense, this doesn't make sense. And then you started to kind of go into your rebellion, as
1: we mentioned earlier. I credit a lot of my curiosity and desire to question. I, I credit that to my parents. My father was a very inquisitive, very curious, very adventurous person. And my mother was a very logical sound type of person. So where many of the community members might um, go off the deep end or get a little eccentric with the word and the teachings, um, my parents were were not quite as much. So I do credit some of where I went to simply being having that basis for context. My father also had a... There was a family that we would occasionally... Um, have social outings with that was outside of the community. We just wouldn't tell anybody we would, and then we would go as a family, perhaps like on a camping trip or um, a a trip to California or something like that together. So there was a lot of us versus them. And there was somewhat of almost an embarrassment. Mm. Yeah. Not necessarily a shame, but an embarrassment where it's like, I am very, very different. I don't fit in. And why is that? Why is it that these people can wear this dress and I cannot? Why is it that I have to practice these certain things or I'm not worthy of going to heaven? Where is it that I am so wicked by a simple thought that I will not be worthy and I will be banished to eternal damnation and hell? So a lot of those things I just started to question. And then when I came to turning myself in, that was the biggest aha where I started to question it was, why can't I choose? Why is it that one day someone's going to knock on the door and tell my father that they're there to take me to the altar? And I don't get a choice. Yeah. I don't get to say no. Why is it that this is the case? So it was just this consistent questioning. And I remember when I brought some of these questions to my brother, because he would um, recite the doctrine and, and read a scripture each night, then it was always the same answer until I just stopped asking. And the answer was, it was almost like the shameful, oh, how dare you? God is speaking to you through me and through the this, this scriptures. And by you questioning it, you are denying it. And therefore, God will not choose you. So there's a lot of fear behind that. In isolation, there's a couple of things that can happen. You can get completely lost in the forest of your mind and go to insanity. Or you can go in there and start devising a plan, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is what I was doing. I was thinking of all these imaginative I was creating these scenarios of what my life must look like on the outside, when I had the choice to do whatever I wanted to. And one of the biggest um, driving forces for for my wanting to leave was education. I wanted to go to college. I wanted to have the degree. Mm. I wanted to have the job. I wanted to be able to come and go as I like, please. I had this plan, and and by virtue of being an omnipotent teen at that time, I didn't <laughs> really consider. What, what would need to be arranged for me to be successful? I just knew I just wanted to get the hell out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I was not going to live in this compound where it's just this dread of, of, um, I was a puppet. There was a puppet master and you just, everybody was on a string. Yes, master. It was just like, it, I was, I didn't want to, I wanted to cut those strings and I wanted to fly away. Um, so in my situation, we certainly had more exposure to the outside than the traditional family because of my father's engagements with, um, certain families outside of the community. So there was that, that influence, I would say, where I was, I had a lot of that comparison, us versus them. And, and what does all this mean? And I can't imagine these people burning in hell because they're not dressed like me or they don't worship. If, if they don't worship the same leader, how is it that they go to hell? Because they have a thought that's different than mine.
0: It's pretty amazing that you were able to have those thoughts. And kudos to your parents for allowing you a peek into the real world, I guess we could call it. Um, yeah. Into the modern world is probably a better way to say it. And. So, what happens when? I know from just knowing your story that you did rebel. <laughs> how did you rebel, and how were you punished for that? Which will lead us to our
1: cliffhanger moment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay, I'm taking a moment to yeah, sure to go into this. I, I'm like, I'm physiologically feeling that moment of of where I'm going with this. So, we're gonna sort of just fast forward then. So, when I was seventeen years old, I was demonstrating what would have been considered um, a lot of rebellion. Um, there was a lot of opposition I was getting in trouble, and what trouble looked like was um, I might leave the home without asking my parents permission and uh, and I would go spend time with other friends where we would listen to music. We might a common practice was to go to this this designated um, hiking spot and we'd let our hair down and let it blow in the breeze and listen to wicked, wicked music, music. And <laughs> dance, and and drink too. We would, uh, yeah, <laughs> right. It was kind of <laughs> like dirty dancing in that scene where they sneak out and they they rebel against the the um, their church members, but. Any, in any event. And oftentimes it would uh, lead to us also consuming alcohol. If we knew someone who was of age, they might bring us a, a six pack or Jack Daniels or something like that. And we would have a couple sips and get a little silly. And, <laughs> and I don't know if my parents ever knew that I was taking it to that extent, but what they knew is I was being disobedient. And obedience is the ultimate precipice of your demonstration of faith, especially for a woman. So for a woman to, to demonstrate this, to be in full disobedience was, was not acceptable. I was sent with my sister to a compound in Bountiful, Canada. And this compound at that time, now this was back in 1999, this compound was designated and had a reputation of being the place where those who were showing signs of defecting, those who were showing signs of rebellion, maybe they were caught in a um, questionable place with a, um, Mm. with a love interest or something of that sort. Maybe they had premarital relations. They were sent there to be what I call rehabilitated. (laughs) Basically they're preparing for marriage and then they'd be married off. They were going to pull them out of the snares of evil clean them up and get them back in alignment. So I was sent there with my sister as an opportunity to correct, to correct myself. During that time, unbeknownst to me, I knew later, but unbeknownst to me, my marriage was being arranged in the background. And I was sent to spend time with two of Warren Jeff's wives that were my age at the time. They had been married to him when they were 16, 15, 16, something in that that area. I had spent time with them where they were um, influencing me to re-examine my behavior and my thoughts. But ultimately I didn't know then, but I know now that they were there to encourage me and sort of set this like um, this preface and this um, priming for marriage. I'd spent time with one of the largest families there helping their, the wives. I believe there was um, close to 20 of the wives in this home that oh. I was spending time with. And I would assist with preparing for lunch or dinner or helping with the children. Uh, there would also be other duties. There would be different duties for the man than there would be for the, for the women. Um, so for me, it would be, it might be spending time in the garden, um, preparing for harvest, whatever it was. Here's what happened though. And this was unexpected. And this is what gave me some fire and courage was, I went to a library for the first time. Now, in the community, there was, there was at one time until the books were burned, but at one time, there was like your, your traditional school children's library. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd find Nancy Drew books and, um, even after we weren't allowed to read, I'd still sneak some books and we'd hide them so no one would find them and stuff like that. But, and there was a, a small community library in Hurricane, Utah. Where I would go, sometimes I would I would sneak out and go to the library and get some books. Come back. This was like a real library that I had only read about, and I walked in, and there was just this. Oh! <laughs> it was it was so profound to me that it just like broke open this just desire for knowledge and this hunger and just solidified that idea that i wanted to go into an institution of education i was just like an absolute all just going anything that i want to know oh my gosh did the internet was that a thing at that point that was the second thing i figured out i learned what the internet was for the first time in my life and i i was exposed to what's called a chat room an AOL chat room at that time uh-oh so there was <laughs> there was a lot of this outside world that i was like Where has this been? But here I go in this library, completely just encompassed in all this curiosity. And what does a young teenager do? I go to the anatomy section. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) So, And and I I didn't necessarily say, hmm, I'm going to go there. But I'm kind of wandering around deciding like, oh, my gosh, there's all these goodies. Like, what am I going to absorb first? And I'm looking around and I see this one section and I'm just like... (laughs) It's just like right out in the open. Yeah. So I can like fumbling through books and I have to get vulnerable here. When I was sifting through that section of the library, I did not know what my own anatomy looked like until I saw it in a book. Really? I didn't even know. That's yes. You're, you're kept to this very, very, very isolated, innocent frame of mind for a reason. And it was just like and I was in absolute awe. And of course, I shifted over to other items that I could could see and view and and rented like 20 different books. but that was that was a big big, monumentous time in um, encouraging me to to move forward with mm. with my decision because I knew that I knew I wasn't gonna stay, and I wondered, I wondered. Am I going to have to go through with a marriage and then leave? Yeah. In my situation, because of my parents, I didn't, I wasn't so fearful about potentially escaping like so many other women have to. They have to get up in the middle of the night and haul their children out with help to escape. Mine wasn't as sensational as that, but I knew I would still have to go through some sort of breaking away where I would be left on my own and isolated. So... There was that moment. Um, there was also a moment of seeing internet for the first time and, um, being able to chat with outsiders in a chat room and having conversations and making that connection. Like there, there was something so profound about it because here I am still behind the walls, still behind an outside world that separated Still behind these gates that separated the outside world to myself. But I was talking to someone from the outside and it felt to me, even though it was fun and it was exciting, it was still a reminder that you're in prison. Mm. This is not the way I want to live. I want to interact with the world. And so that was, that was a profound moment.
0: How long were you there before they took you back?
1: To your home. So that's where the story gets interesting because when I was there, right a couple of days before I was scheduled to go back home to Colorado City, I was helping the community prepare for a wedding ceremony. And it was common in that compound to have a traditional summer arrangement of marriages that all occurred at the same time. Wow, like a a group wedding for a bunch of people? Yeah. And it was, it was considered very lively and romantic. Um, to, to us kind of like outside looking in, there seemed to be a tremendous amount of happiness, engagement. People look forward to it. People oftentimes you'd hear them say, Oh, I hope I'm chosen for one of the, for the wedding event. And, and, um, someone comes to me and says, Judith, it's your turn. And I was like, What? My turn for what? And I said, Oh, um, you're, you're meeting, you're meeting with, um, and it was one of the the brethren. And I was like, why? That was very confusing. Uh, why would they want to meet with me? Like, what is this? And, and as I'm walking to the office, I'm thinking, okay, maybe I, this is like, I need to bear my testimony. Maybe mm-hmm. I need, maybe this is a confessional. I need to talk about my sins, you know, which wasn't uncommon. So I sort of felt like I was going to the principal's office kind of thing. Like, oh, gosh, what could this be? And I go into the office and it's just one one man. There wasn't any other church leaders or members or anyone there to defend me. Nothing. And I was asked the sort of myopic questions. How are you feeling here? Do you feel like your faith has been tested? Do you feel you're closer to Heavenly Father after being here? When you go back to the community, you know, just the general Q&A. And then as the questions were being demonstrated, that moment the walls just came in and I was like, oh my God, I'm being arranged right now. Mm. I'm about to get married. I'm about to be thrust into a, a place where I can't get out and I have no idea who I'm going to be assigned to and I'll never get out now. And that's when the panic came in, and I couldn't think of anything more about how am I going to get out of here. So I'm sitting in sheer panic, and that's when he says the words to me, it is my time. It is my time to be placed with husband. Mm. And I start to randomly blurt out these sort of defense um, questions and comments, kind of like trying to stave this decision off and i'm just like desperately saying like for example um well i really um i really don't think think i'm ready i would i would like to uh, study the the faith a little bit more and and prepare myself more for 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 holy matrimony and i i want to be a better wife and so I, I need some time for that i remember one time pleading pleading and saying i really want to have a better relationship with my parents and every Every line was that I had delivered was returned with, well, this is the way that you demonstrate that. This is the way. This is an opportunity. Oh, my goodness. How dare you deny this? And with that, we are going to
0: leave everyone hanging. Did Did Jude get married? Was she forced into doing this? And we're going to talk about in our next episode... How she eventually escaped the fundamentalist group and became so well adjusted in the modern world, which is a whole nother story. I mean, we've been going, we went longer than we even anticipated today. There's so much, and there were so many questions that I didn't even ask because there's just so much to unpack. I mean, how do you unpack your whole childhood in one hour? So, thank you so much for sharing that and being so vulnerable. Absolutely. Before we leave, I need your Linda Listen moment, your spicy <gasps> statement to somebody, or you can go the inspirational route. It's up to you, whatever you want to do.
1: Okay, I'm going to go the inspirational route. And I'm going to encourage every listener to redefine the definition of struggle and realize what an opportunity each challenge that there is in life has gifted us to receive these opportunities and these nuggets of growth that we get that would not present these opportunities without that. And that is not to discredit some people's suffering or to discredit trauma because that is a different kind of struggle. But I'm talking about these moments when we are like, How, I am so alone. How can I ever get beyond this and get beyond myself and limitations? And I say, challenge that. Like even if you have to just close your eyes and keep going, like the fear sometimes is not going to go away. So Mm. close your eyes and keep walking, jump off the plank if you have to, like there's. Yeah. Yeah. I would say challenge that perspective that it's a negative uh, presentation to have struggle in your life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. It
1: contributes to that evolution of our own story. Yeah.
0: Linda, listen, do the hard things, change your perspective and keep going. Well, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up?
1: No, I'm so
0: excited to continue in the next episode. Thank you so much for your time and uh, your wisdom and your experiences. It's much appreciated. And to everyone else listening, if you want to support the podcast and hear more behind the scenes things that we're doing, some news and updates, you can go become a patron at patreon.com slash consciousness And for everyone else listening, thank you so much Follow all your highest excitement be conscious and be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with our visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts to Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts to at Gmail.com.